Hello and welcome to the Build with Clay podcast. I am your host, Clay Davis. This podcast is designed to introduce you to people from across the world who have one thing in common. They want to grow in their life and inspire others. You'll get a front row seat to hear about how they define their mindset and their purpose. We'll unearth their habits, their failures, and learnings throughout their journey. And this will allow you to take those habits, those failures, and those learnings and apply them to your personal growth journey, no matter where you're trying to build yourself and grow. This podcast is designed for you, so thank you for being here. Prepare to meet interesting people, hear fun stories, learn something new, and plan to leave inspired. On this episode, we build with Kathy Failing. Thanks to my dad, I have known Kathy my entire life. My dad swam in college with her husband, Bill, and both Kathy and Bill have been stalwarts in my life since I was born. Her two daughters, their husbands, and their children are like family, and Kathy actually isn't the first to join in on the podcast, as I had her daughter Allie on episode 23. Kathy began her career in sales and worked up through management, often becoming the first woman to hold leadership positions in the companies she worked for. Then, in the middle of the night, Kathy decided it was time to start her own company. Over the next 20-plus years, she became an extremely successful executive recruiter, helping multi-billion dollar companies find their next CEOs. In this episode, we explore her journey on what it was like to be a woman in a man's world, what it was like to start her own company, and the trials and tribulations along the way. Towards the end of the episode, we unearth what led her to retirement and what everyone should know about entering that phase of their life. This was a fun one. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Super excited to welcome Kathy Failing to the podcast today. I've been eager to have Kathy since I started this podcast, and I'm so honored to have her on. Kathy, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm honored that you asked me, and I apologize. I need a little bit of time to to uh, unwind post-retirement before I was re- willing to jump back on Zoom. Hey, it's <laughs> it's going to be a benefit to all because I know we're going to get into your retirement and what you've learned about yourself and others. And uh, I think maybe having that space from, from the time you retired to now will uh, allow you to provide some great insight on what life has been like. And, uh, you know, I, I've known you my whole life, thanks to my dad and the relationship you had with him and my family. And so I'm, uh, I know you really well, but I don't know the answers to these questions that I'm about to ask you. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> So I we're going to go know f- the answer. <laughs> we're going to go food related first. Okay. Would you rather give up pizza or give up tacos? Uh, pizza. Would you rather eat? This is going to sound like Hayes or Walker came up with this question. <laughs> Would you rather eat earthworms covered in tomato sauce or spaghetti noodles covered in mud? Spaghetti noodles covered in mud, the whole earthworm thing. And that does sound like Hayes said, please ask. Yes, please ask Miss Kathy this question. (laughs) All right. Would you rather be bored all the time or busy all the time? Oh, gosh. I don't think I know how to be bored. So I, gosh, that's an interesting one, especially knowing my history on the I guess I'd rather be busy all the time because I don't know what it's like to be bored. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Knowing you for a long time, I think inst- I think in the past you would have instantly said busy. Yes. Yeah. But the fact that you paused on that tells me something about your new mindset. Yes, the new mindset. Yeah. 
Would you rather swim for an hour every day for a year or run for an hour every day for a year? Uh, considering I can't really run at all, I guess I'd probably have to take swimming, but both of them would sound miserable to me. I tried being like your dad just recently and going swimming or like, you know, Bill, and I was miserable. So <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, well, uh, my dad would be proud, so would Bill, uh, of the swim answer, but uh, I would immediately rule out running. Running is the worst. It's terrible. <laughs> it I just, just horrible. And then with what's going on with my legs, I wouldn't make it very far, so it would be really <laughs> miserable. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, I got two golf ones for you. Okay. So the first one, would you rather go to every major, every golf major, all four majors this year, every single round, free of charge, but you would miss the players? the players championship in Jacksonville Ooh. or would you rather go to the players, but can't attend any of the majors? I would go to the players lifelong memories at the players. You've been involved with them for several years. And, um, I just, and that would probably be a changed answer too. Over the last, I've just realized what things are important and those uh, lifelong memories that you have with a whole group of people right here. And I also, Unlike a lot of people, one of the first things I didn't do in retirement is travel. I have 3 million miles that need to be used, and I just don't really have a big desire to use them. (laughs) (laughs) I love being home, and I love that week and what we invest in it with the people in our house. It's chaos, but it's awesome. Yeah, and my kids are part of that chaos, and we're honored to be a part of that chaos. Yeah, Uh, we love it. So I figured that's what you were going to say, but... uh, grateful that that you said it it's uh that's one of the best weeks of the year in in our lives so well we thank you we love having awesome. you guys and i also think my answer is a little different given time in life right now but also we had the pleasure of being at the u.s open with tiger went against uh oh and tory pines yep yeah tory yep. pines and we went to the masters and so i've i've gotten a, my taste of it and um i just you can't replace what happens to players that week yep All right. Last golf question. I asked you this one in advance because this one got sprung on me on my own podcast by Jonathan Stokey when he was interviewing me and I fumbled through the question. I was like, okay, I really like this question, but I need, I want to give Kathy some grace and allow her to think about it. Thank you. So if you were to have a golf foursome of any, so it's yourself and three others, you could play at any course and the, the people that are involved in the golf foursome can be alive or dead. Who are the three people you would choose and what course would you play? The course is actually the easiest one. I'd choose Augusta National because first of all, women aren't even allowed. So, <laughs> and then non-members aren't allowed. So I can, like, can hit all those things with this wish. So Augusta National is the easy part. And when I first thought of it, I started thinking like most people, you think towards the famous golfers. And I've had the pleasure to play with several famous golfers Furyk and Annika Sorenstam and Lemmatis and in foursomes, just on our own. So I would choose, and might start the podcast off in a little bit of an emotional belt, but I would choose you, my husband, and your dad. Oh, man. And, <laughs> and we would relive a Ricky Fowler because, again, going to life now versus life back, you know, give me 20 years ago. Um, I would choose the lifelong things because I've had the pleasure to, to play with people that are famous, but reality is they're not going to be your friends. 
um, and they're not going to be lifelong. And they are, usually our, our heroes disappoint us when we actually get to know them better, but your friends won't. And you have limited time to spend that time with those friends. So I'd give up at all to play one more round with your dad. And I don't care if it was at Augusta. Because one of the things they did that I tell people is when we started those Ricky Fowler events, which for the audience, um, we went away for you and I were a team against your dad and Bill. And your dad didn't like golf at the time and neither did Bill. They couldn't stand it. They were horrible. And they did it because Bill was chatting with your dad and said, Kathy always wanted to go on a guy's golf outing and they don't really have them for women. And so your dad and my husband, Bill, end up setting it up, the two best friends. And you and I actually really love the golf and they just love the scenery and, the <laughs> and talking to each other like two old ladies. <laughs> so that would be my answer. I knew that probably started off on a little bit of a rough note. Um, in uh, a positive too, but then I can also answer if I had to have take, pick people that actually are stars in golf, I can answer it that way too. Well, um, I'm glad you kept talking because uh, I needed a moment there. Um, yeah. Those are uh, those are really special times. We did that, <clears throat> gosh, probably six years in a row, and then obviously my dad got diagnosed with ALS and couldn't couldn't do it anymore, so we had to adapt, um, which we did great. Uh, I think in a in a great way with some other fun outings with the families, but. Uh, yeah, those are really special times, and I would, uh, I would give anything to have another another round with y'all. It's funny, I you know I said I fumbled through my answer. Yeah, and my my initial answer, I think, on the podcast was, oh, I well, you know, maybe family, and then I was like, well, oh gosh, like Peyton Manning and Tiger Woods and Steph Curry, right? Like you know <laughs> something like that. And then I was, yeah. and then I landed on my my grandfather, my dad, and then <laughs> and then I said Walker. Because Walker's the one that <laughs> you know actually good. like really likes to play golf, yeah. and if, as he should have, the host John Stokey was like, "Wow, so Hayes Wells just not just getting <laughs> getting left out of the foursome." <laughs> <laughs> they didn't make it in the foursome. Yeah, so I, if you know, so of course, like I didn't really have anything to say about that. I, I <laughs> he caught me red-handed, but um, yeah, it's a tough tough one to to answer, but honored to be a part. Of that foursome. Um, that well, and then I, my initial thought when you first said it, um, I said, well, I know what he's going for. So I'll come up with some stars in case he has me come back around. So my ideal foursome would be Arnold Palmer. I learned watching golf with my dad. I was my dad's boy and we watched Arnold Palmer and my dad looks like Arnold Palmer. My dad's still living. Uh, but he looks like Arnold Palmer to me. He does. So um, I just think he's such a champion of the game. Would love to play with him. And then Annika Sornstam, I'd like to play with again because she's the one that actually got me into golf because I played with her when I wasn't a golfer and she said I could be good, encouraged me to play, gave me a couple of tips. And it was literally her and I, and she just won a big tournament the night before. So I'd love to come back and play with her. And then I'd like to add somebody like out of the realm to that. I would go for um, George Bush Sr. Um, I met him, had the pleasure of meeting him years ago when his son was in office and um, he's probably one of the nicest people to hold that kind of office that I've ever met. Truly genuine, truly humbled. And he loves golf. And I bet it'd just be really interesting to hear about all the adventures of positive and negatives of being the president of the United States. Yeah. And seeing his son as president. And seeing his son do it. And yeah. then just the, and going through 9-11 and then the elder stuff that was negative on that. So just there's so many, both of them had ups and 
down. So, so that would be my foursome. Very cool. Very cool. That's awesome. Well, at Augusta uh, National. So, <laughs> at Augusta National. That's right. Stick it to them. <laughs> All right, Kathy, I ask every guest these two questions, and uh, you're no different. So, how would you define a growth mindset? I lived it for a long time. So, it, I, it, typically, it goes back to I initial, my initial response is company, because that's what company, career, how do you grow your career? How do you grow your company? And you have to have that persistence and ability to overcome hurdles because if you're trying to grow a company or um, your career, you're going to run into all kinds of roadblocks. If you're trying to grow, there's now I look at it a different way. If I'm trying to grow myself and I have limited time left here, what am I going to do to stretch myself? And no matter what you do in a growth capacity, whether it's personal growth, career growth, company growth, it's not going to be easy road. So you, the, I think the biggest thing is to plan for perseverance. Even if you're trying to grow your own uh, health, it's it's challenging. So um, plan for perseverance. That's a that's awesome. I love yeah. that phrase. Yeah. So how would you define your why or your purpose in your life? Um, I think that purpose has kind of changed. When I was early, younger, it was all about kind of survival. It's a stage, I think, that you go through. You get married, have kids, you're trying to provide for your family. And so it's all about, um, it's very me-centered. And so I think that for a long time, probably too long, my purpose was was first me and then in through me, my family. My husband stayed home, so my career became my identity. I think that's now changed. Um, in fact, I know it's changed. I feel like I've been blessed with all of those things. I was born in the United States. I have great parents. I have great friends, a wonderful husband, wonderful children. So I feel that this time I have left whatever God's given me is time to pay that back. So I think my purpose has really changed from being me oriented to how can I serve others and provide some way of gratitude for all the blessings that, that have been bestowed upon me. We're going to get into your journey a little bit. And I think the listeners will be able to hear kind of how this has evolved and why your why has changed over time. And I've, you know, I've seen 30 years of it, 35 years of it. And I know that there's a lot that has gone into it and uh, it's been fun to be, to be a part of it. But growing up, I had a lot of role models growing up. They were mainly, as I look back, I was reflecting before our conversation and they were all athletes or coaches, mostly UNC based, right? Yeah, and it was surprise. just like, that was my life growing up. That was, that, those were my role models, you know, outside of like, you know, my dad or my mom. But I, I realized I had very few women role models in my younger years. My mom, who served as a wonderful role model on how to raise a family and live by the golden rule. And I realized really my only other super influential role model that was a woman was you. Wow. Honored. I mean, you showed me that women have just as much right to be in the corporate boardroom and on the golf course as men. <laughs> I and, love the golf course. I love you out of that. <laughs> and, and seriously, I mean, you were the only woman that I played golf with you know, when I was a teenager, right? Or in college, it was just like, that was just not part of the grouping that I had. And so, and you know, this is back in the nineties and early two thousands when it was just 
way less common for a woman to own her own business or for a woman to be on the golf course, especially with other men. And it became common to me because of the relationship that we had and, and what our family's relationship, but it wasn't common to talk to someone's mom and they could not only share stories about the business that they ran, but they could also stay up and watch a Michigan state football game until midnight. Right. Like, and, and that's, that's who you were. And that, so it's a huge role model for me. And so I'm excited to get into your journey to see how this transpired because I'm, you were a woman in basically a man's world early in your career. But before we get into, I want to get your insight on that, on how you felt and what, what challenges you faced. But I want to go even earlier before I knew you, what was your favorite job as a teenager or in college and how did it influence you? That's a great question. And and since we're keeping this fun, I'll go, I, I have to give you two answers. There was a fun one that was my favorite because it was fun. And then there's another job that more molded me and prepared me to own my own company or actually be an executive first before I own my own company um, in that the woman in the man's world. So the first one, the really fun one, I was a security guard at an outdoor music um, festival. Stop it. Yeah. for It was called Pie Knob for two summers when I was in uh, high school, I think last year of high school and first year in college. It was called Pie Knob Music Theater. And being from Detroit, Motown, we got every artist that was hot. I have seen everybody that you can imagine from the 70s and 80s, and even some comedians like Steve Martin. And uh, But everyone you can imagine was would go through there. And that was really fun. It was also kind of a weird job, like being a secure... I'm a, I'm a 20... Well, at the time, no, I was like 17, 18-year-old woman with a yellow jacket on. I didn't really help any security. <laughs> Were you at least able to listen to the show? Oh yeah. Because what it was outdoor theater. My job walked back and forth in whatever aisle I was assigned. <laughs> so, and that was an upgrade from picking the hill. You started the job picking the hill, which was really gross. Uh, you had to literally walk in a line the next morning and pick up all the junk off the grass. They had seats and then the grass. That was gross. But super fun job as a security guard. The more influential job to what I ended up doing, and I and I think at the time I didn't realize how inter, um, how influential. I was the first hired group to open the McDonald's, the first McDonald's in our town. So I was 16 at the time, and I became a swing manager at 17. So I was the swing manager of the local McDonald's, and at the time in the 70s, McDonald's was really expanding the franchises. But it was really the only game in town. We didn't have Chick-fil-A. We didn't have, they didn't have competition. And everybody went to McDonald's. And the the training that I got to be a swing manager, I was basically managed a store, a McDonald's franchise or that that location. Um, During certain hours, I was the primary person there. And I learned about inventory. I learned about customer service. I learned how to do every job. And it was hard work. Back in that day, they wouldn't let you stand still. They had surprise visits. So I was even offered to go to Hamburger U, um, which I thought was a joke. And it was actually, it's actually a real place. And they recruited me to go to Hamburger U, but I'm a third generation Spartan. There was no question I was going to Michigan State. And so I didn't even think about it. And what they were doing at the time was offering- You could have been a first generation hamburger. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. In fact, looking back, my dad kind of said, whoops, um, because- 
he uh, he at one point tried to buy a McDonald's franchise and it was just next to impossible. They were giving franchises to women and minorities who graduated from Hamburger University. And a woman that was with me in that class of people that would have gone now owns like 23 McDonald's in Detroit, in the Detroit area. <laughs> so maybe I made a mistake, but it was a it was a fabulous learning ground. And so I don't I encourage young people to work hard jobs that instill discipline at a young age. But it probably also turned into my workaholic way too, because I, I worked there all the time when I was first. I'm from 16 to 21, I worked there. So. Wow. I definitely did not know about the security guard. I, I recall hearing about Hamburger U in the past from you, but yeah. the security guard, that's uh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that is so cool. You can well, tell it had top-notch security too when you have a I'm sure today it's much different. They're probably armed. And, you know, then it was, we wore a yellow jacket and that was it. Ooh, the scary woman in the yellow jacket. <laughs> walking in the aisle. Right. Look out. The only uh, power we had is we could kick you out. Yeah, there you go. All right. You had some power. That's good. Your career blossomed from there. You went, you went to Michigan State and was your first job out of Michigan State in the corporate world? Yes, I was. I actually thought I was going to medical school. I was a pre-med student and uh, part of really involved with the medical program there. But then I had a friend who left and got a job selling. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm so tired of school and having no money. And and so um, I got a job selling for what was then American Hospital Supply is now a variety of companies, Baxter and some other companies people would recognize in Colorado. So I was selling in Colorado. So I, I started in sales. And then, so what was it like? You can pick any part of your career, but I imagine earlier is more influential. What was it like being a woman in a man's world early in your career? I mean, we're talking about what, early eighties, mid eighties. Yeah, it was, it was early eighties. And actually the reason I, uh, one of the reasons I got that job so easily at American hospital supply is because um, they were recruiting women and minorities to diversify mm -hmm. their team. And so I started on a team where I was the only woman, it was all men. And they started out, their nickname um, was the word you use for bull testicles. <laughs> so that was our team name. <laughs> and so I just, uh, I had to, going back to the word persevere, I had to persevere and just, it was, it was a sign of time that we were carving a pathway for women. And at the time in sales, I really didn't understand it until I got into higher management, uh, upper management, senior level management, when I was always the only woman. I was the only woman in the executive team. I was the first VP uh, for my second company, Picker International, the first VP, female VP in the 100-year history of the company, made the front page of the Cleveland Plain Dealer, which was actually really sad because that was in, the, that was in 90, uh, early 90s. And so the company was well behind other companies. But I would say two things, the perseverance, and then I had to... I encourage all women, including our daughters and women that I now mentor, young women or, or mothers, parents, to get their girls involved in sports. Because my father, my mother and father uh, did a couple things, never limited us by being girls. We we're all girls and exposed us to sports. Title IX was just taking effect. So we had a lot of opportunity for sports. I threw a ball with my dad from when I was little. It was our thing. Throw a football, a baseball. And I played um, three sports in high school, softball, actually more than that, softball, tennis, and basketball. And then I tried a bunch. I played flag football. 
I just love sports. And what that taught me, which a lot of women I saw that tried to do or tried to advance, would not understand the idea of competitiveness, but also teamwork. Like, don't take something, someone disagrees with you in a meeting. It's like ha having a competition on a field. You just, you disagree, you get past it and you move on. You don't get all emotional about it. And so not to say I didn't have struggles with that because I did through the years where I felt like I was being talked over to. There were more than one occasion I got asked to get coffee. And so it was not easy, but as I in, as in you can leave the room now, Kathy, we're going to yes. figure this out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think what happened is I had to not take things as person. Now, now the world's come a long, long way. And the pendulum, in my personal opinion, has probably gone too far the other way where people are afraid to say something that a female or minority might take the wrong way in the executive room or in the sales field. And so now people are sheltering themselves from the truth and not sharing what they need to share. So I think I lived through uh, you know, sexual harassment and verbal harassment and all kinds of things that you don't want to have happen to anyone in the workforce. And I, I was there with women and minorities. I would put us in the same boat from that career, early 80s, 90s, I witnessed both age discrimination, racial discrimination. But now I think the pendulum has gone a little bit too far where people are afraid to talk and afraid to be afraid to be open. So I would encourage families to keep to include their girls in sports, or if it's not sports, and they lean more towards dance or cheerleading, that's fine. But that's still a team. That's still a team effort, or get them in some sort of team sport. And then I would say, you kind of have to not take yourself too seriously or other people's comments too personally because they often aren't, they're not used to you being around or they're not used to your approach. And you'll just get yourself in more of a bind if you get all wound up about it. You're bringing up an interesting point. We can cut this out if this ends up not being a useful topic, but I'm a white male executive who has had every advantage in the corporate world that anyone could have. And how can I make sure that I'm not sheltering my my words, my the way I approach a situation just because maybe I'm talking to like I don't think I have any bias towards you right. know, oh, oh, I'm talking to a woman, I need to approach this differently, or yeah. I'm talking to someone of a different race, I need to talk about this differently. But I guess you saying the pendulum has swung the other way, which I can see examples of that in the corporate world, no doubt about it. Yeah. What advice would you have for someone either in my shoes or just the general culture? about how we make sure to get the pendulum in the right spot? Well, in, um, one of the things that I think really hurts that situation, and this usually happens, people try to overcorrect. So we're trying to overcorrect the disservices that have been done to women and minorities in the corporate rule, in the corporate world by making sure that we hire and put as many people in the roles and promote, et cetera. But where, where I see that not doing any of us as a good service is when we promote too, too early, place someone in a situation where they're destined to lose, pass over someone who's white and male who may have been the person who really has worked longer, harder, but only to fulfill a quota. So what happens is you've hurt both sides of the equation. And I have real life examples of those because that's what I did for a living when I, before I closed my company where you're putting board members on boards because they're women, because you have an edict to do so. But that, women, that woman 
isn't well prepared or doesn't have the experience to sit on that board or to sit in that seat. I know of a woman who went, um, was recruited back to a company that the company's $10 billion because she was a woman and she was running a really small company. She passed over all the people that had sat there to wait, but the company felt like they had to put a woman in the role. So instead of trying to figure out how to put somebody on a career path towards that role, they put that woman in the role destined for failure on all sides or destined at least to be attacked because the credibility of the hire isn't there. So I think one part is making sure you get the hiring correct, that the person has the attributes, the experience base to handle the role. And then if you're in the role, you're a peer, let's say you're a peer, talk about subject matter, not personalities. So you have to keep, try to keep the person or what they're, it's, it's hard to do, but keep it, keep it more benign that, that it's more about the action or the way this came across or rather than the person. Mm-hmm. Um, the demeaning things that I went through were things like, <laughs> and, and I guess I learned this the best, was we're all different culturally. And if we think we're behind, the United States is way further ahead than other countries. And any woman or man who runs international businesses can tell you this. So my one of my favorite stories about needing to just bite my tongue was I was opening a business in Argentina. And so I'm in Argentina, Latin country that tends to um, treat women a certain way. And then we're meeting with the Japanese. So the Japanese really have women. I wouldn't have even been in the room at the time, the Japanese in the 90s again. And um, literally, I made a comment. They're all around. Japanese people typically have someone next to them. If they're from Japan, it was the head of Japan for this company. And he had a right-hand person who spoke for him. And then there were three Latin men, one other United States, one other American who was white male and me. I was the highest ranking person in the room other than the Japanese um, CEO. And I made a comment at the front end of the meeting. And everybody went like this where they like pause, no one said a thing. And the Japanese person next that spoke for the CEO looked down the table at me and then paused, looked at everybody else and said, where were we? Literally oh. never replied to my question. I was completely dish. So the one Latin guy on one side and the American on the other are kicking me under the table, knowing that I want to just like burst out and say, what? I didn't say a thing. I got the signal. I'm not to speak. Didn't speak for the rest of the meeting. At the very end, guess what they did? What the final conclusion was? Exactly what I brought up at the beginning of the two-hour or three-hour meeting. It was the most humbling yet frustrating situation I've ever been in. But it also made me realize culturally I wasn't going to change them. And not, so, in, not in two hours. No, Not in two hours. And I didn't know them well enough. So the other thing is to get to know, I'd say I'd add, get to know the women or minorities that are working with you so you know their sensitivities and um, what their experience base has been. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That <laughs> I could not even imagine being treated that way. That's yeah. um, Wow. <laughs> Well done for you holding your tongue there. Well, I don't think I would have if I didn't have people like kicking me under the table. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Well, so you kind of emerged from, uh, you know, the corporate world sales, climbing the ladder to then you go and start your own company. 
Yeah. Tell us about that. What, what went into that? Never thought I would do that. And I highly encourage people to own their own companies. Now, I always worked for big companies. All the companies I was with were very large. And then I exited a company here that was a mismatch. I was hired in and I was very publicly demoted, which is also very uh, humbling. I was brought in as a chief operating officer, a billion dollar company, and then and moved my family down here. My husband decided to stay home. And then I and I was in the newspapers and flying private planes and all the things that build up your ego really high and and uh, thought I was leading this big organization. We bought uh, we made 46 acquisitions in 18 months. And um, and 18 18 months later, as I had predicted, things started to fall apart, but people didn't want to hear that. And so um, I was pretty publicly demoted to a chief marketing officer before those even existed. And um, and here's a placeholder title role for you. Yes, a placeholder. Some of that, they could still keep the woman on the team. And that was a very, I thought I went from a company that wasn't very diverse to one that was less diverse. So it was a, it was a really challenging mismatch culturally, and so um, I ended up ultimately leaving the company. Was recruited away to run a small company out of Israel, and then I didn't get the job. Last minute, it was two finalists, and I didn't get the job. In fact, I was in Israel when the USS Cole was bombed. I was just leaving Israel. So great experience. I didn't get the job, but the search consultant at the time, which some people call me executive recru- recruiters, search consultant who did only CEOs, et cetera, encouraged me to get into search. And my ego replied with, uh, no, I run companies. I run big companies. No, thank you. I'm the CEO. I'm a president. I'm not going to do a search. Ultimately, um, wind the story forward. He convinced me that I could stay here. My family loved Florida. Our kids were young. We didn't want to move again. Bill didn't, definitely didn't want to move, leave the beach of Florida. So um, I was with him for a couple of years. I found the same thing. He taught me the business, which was amazing. Executive search, very senior level in the life sciences arena. But he's 15 years older than me, a male. People thought that I worked for him as an assistant and wouldn't give me the primary business, even my friends, because they thought that he was going to gain the business. So one day I woke up super risky. I woke my husband up in the middle of the night, which he doesn't like to have done. And I said, um, I'm leaving. I had nothing. We didn't have anything in the bank. He had stopped working. And I said, I'm going to start my own firm. I feel comfortable that I can do it. And um, the riskiest thing I've ever done and the most blessing I've ever received. It was the most amazing 20-year run. Lots of work, lots of really hard work. But I would encourage uh, if that's a route that someone feels like they need or want to go. There's a lot to it, but I, I'm so glad I did it. Reach back. What This is 25 years ago? Uh, yes. About, about 22, 22, 23 years ago. Okay. Yeah. 22, 23 years ago. So do your best, like put yourself in that 1am state of I've gotten to the point where I need to wake Bill up and tell him that our life's <laughs> about to change. So here yeah. we go. If there's someone that is close, there may be a listener out there that's close that's been like noodling on this or in a similar spot in their life and their career. What prompted you to take the the actual action to do it? Because I think that's where a lot of people get stuck. Yeah, a very good question. First of all, you have to have a really good model. So um, I had to research because I had a non-compete. I couldn't take the business that had come in. Um, but I think it also, I got a little bit of a push because I finally got my big, 
my first big client. And then my, my former partner kind of got into it with me about whose client it really was and how he's going to, it kind of went back on some of the things he'd committed to. So I got a little bit of a push there and some other people have a push. You may not be happy where you are, or you feel like you didn't get the promotion you deserve, or you want the independence, or you don't want to move, whatever the case may be. What finally pushed me over the edge was that I had learned enough about the business and there was a solid model and I knew that I was good enough to get my business directly. And in fact, I felt like my, my client base was hindered because they didn't know who, what I could really do and they didn't know who they were buying into. Are they buying into me or my partner? And when in my business, it was a consulting business, like a high-end consulting business where the person, the, the client's spending a lot of money. And it, as they spend a lot of money, they're investing in you as a person. So if someone's kind of on a teetering edge, I'd say make sure your models your model is there and then be ready to be the person. So especially if you're used to working in a big company where you have an assistant and someone's planning your schedule for you and you have all these meetings and you haven't you haven't done your own calendar, worked your own IT, or you, then you're probably not ready. You need to be ready for the grueling part of dealing, like I dealt with CEOs and contacted CEOs and board members about searches. Oh, that's all glamorous. At the same time, I'm trying to get a phone to work, an IT system together, a database. Because when I started, it was just me. And it's scary. It is scary. I, I, I mean, I was scrambling after any kind of business I could get in the beginning, trying to figure out, is this really going to work? And so you got to, and you're going to have days that you self-doubt creeps in and you're thinking, oh no, I made a big mistake. So you have to, again, going back, I guess my theme is perseverance. <laughs> you have to get through that. Yeah. And you got a family that you're supporting. Your, yeah. your bill's not working anymore. You got young kids and you've developed this life that you want to keep and a house that you want to maintain and yeah, all of that. So in that moment of, of self-doubt, what are you doing? Like, I know I'm being really specific in that moment. What are you telling yourself? What are you doing to get yourself to persevere? Well, good, very good question. And I meant to add that I couldn't have done it without my husband. So Bill, you know, to <laughs> we joke about him being woke up in the middle of the night because he didn't like that. But he did the next day, like kind of freak out. <laughs> so he's like, okay. But then he also had the confidence in me. He'd already moved with me a couple of times for my career. He'd already taken, we were both on management tracks. He already took a sales track in order to let my career flourish because he knew that women were being promoted and this was a keen opportunity for me to do so. So in the whole equation, Bill was the most selfless. I was the most selfish and, and was for years because I felt like that's what it took to run the business. In the self-doubt, you have to have a sounding board and Bill was my sounding board. He knew what I could do and he had confidence in me and you need like that person who has confidence in you. And, and he was that guy. And then I did, I did rely upon my faith, even though I don't think, I think I relied too much on myself, but I also would like just cry out like, God, give me some peace in this because this is a big risk and I'm putting my family at risk. And that's something that Bill couldn't answer because I'm putting him at risk. And so you just, and then what you do is you have to realize it's not going to be a cakewalk and that you're going to have some really tough time. I made some sacrifices think you're probably going to ask me later, what kind of things would I do differently? Or what would I tell my 40 year old self or 20 year old self? And there were some things I do differently, but at that time, you got to dump your all in and you got to have a family that's behind you to know that you're dumping your all into it. 
that support is key, no doubt. And yeah. I mean, you're touching on a lot of the stuff you said earlier about a growth mindset, right? You got to be yeah. persistent. You got to overcome hurdles. You know, what am I going to do to stretch myself and plan for perseverance, which is one of my favorite phrases now. It's actually become very biblical too now in this next phase of my life, but you have to continue to tell yourself positive thoughts. And in the Bible, we tell ourselves to talk about why we're special and chosen and why God has a bigger plan for you. So you keep re-talking to yourself on that side because there are people in your own mind that doesn't want you to succeed. Your own mind will play, will play games on you and will lower your confidence level. I remember at times, um, just as an example, in our business, the executive search business, we had competitors like all businesses do, but our competitors, once we got retained, we didn't really pay attention to that. So one of the things that would really intimidate me is I competed against major search firms. And I'm this little tiny female owned, which was very uncommon at the time. And what I had to do is just block all that out, that that was not material. What they were doing was not material to my model. And what I did in my model was different in order to be successful. And I had to stick to the model, even when it meant more money, more time, more of my mind share. Because if I thought about all those things, I would have failed. Yeah, you got to ignore the noise. Exactly. Exactly. Good, good way of putting it. Out of curiosity, I mean, you worked with huge corporations, you worked with smaller firms. I'm curious, as you were going about a CEO search, what is, what's an amount that a company pays to go find their next CEO? Well, that's, a, that's an easy question. When I first started my firm, um, I was thrilled with a $40,000, $50,000 fee. In fact, I think my minimum at the time was $40,000 uh, for a search. And we did VPs, CEOs, and board seats. And my whole goal was to reach, start doing CEOs, uh, early stage or large. And when I ended my career, I ended at the top of the hill. It was the highest. It was the where I wanted, thought I always wanted to be, you know, the CEO of a $500 million company and um, that was public or going to go public. We went from 40,000, my average went up to 100,000. And then those larger ones were more like $200,000 fee. Yeah, so, always curious because I mean, these companies are paying millions and millions of dollars to these CEOs with yes. bonuses and equity and, and all sorts of stuff. So I was curious, what do they pay to get someone in the door? That's yeah, interesting. Well, it's, and it depends. The, um, as you go lower down the organization, or if you get into contingent search, the search fees are lower. But I charged the competitor. I was one third the estimated cash compensation base and bonus for the fee. And then what I did, which was a little bit different, is um, I would do some work that once you got to a certain level, the job was the same. And so I felt that the money started to get disproportionate with the job. So mm. I was, I was listening to my customers. So there's some things that I did differently that other firms didn't do yeah. because again, it was all me and I had to do, so I would take on very little. I end up with a wait list because I didn't want to um, ever slip on the performance of the company. Yeah, You didn't want to sacrifice quality for quantity. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. What advice do you have for those that are looking to start their company? Financially, while we didn't have any money in the bank to start the company, we weren't, we weren't um, where we are today, you still have to be able to know how you're going to live because you don't want to be in panic mode. So either take a loan out to start your company or if you can sustain your lifestyle for a year or you, you redo your lifestyle. 
because um, if it means that much to you, you'll change your lifestyle in order to have to start the company, which a lot of people have to do. And then you have to be prepared for what I said earlier about that, that all in. This is going to be all consuming. Anybody who owns their own company would say the same thing, that number one, it's hard, it's high risk, but if the model's solid, um, you know, take the leap. And then I'd say um, invest the time and money. A lot of people try to start a company and they try to cut a corner here or there because they're in the situation we were in. I felt that you have to invest the time and the money to be the very best, to carve out your niche. And then in, in doing so, you have to hire the very best. I didn't have a big team, but I hired the best people and then I allowed them to be them and paid them well to do that. Now, some of them would argue over the years, well, you know, maybe I didn't. I wasn't always. In fact, there were times that they'd have like a come to Jesus meeting with me about, okay, this isn't working. You're being too tyrannical or whatever. You're too much of a perfectionist. But overall, I had one woman that was with me for 19 of the 20 years, another one that was 16, 17 of the 20 years, and another one 15. And then I had some that didn't work out. But I would say, you know, hire the very best people and then treat your customers. Um, use, I used to use a scoring, NPS scoring, uh, net promoter score scoring with our team. I learned that a little bit later in my running the company, probably the last 10 years, so the second decade where we didn't, we didn't need to ask our customers. We could tell our net promoter score and then we would check it when we closed it, closed the search. And then our guarantee was uh, a year and we followed them for two years and we'd go back at them at five years and say, how is everything going? And try to keep track of how, what the customers think of you. Mm -hmm. um, because if I always treat the customer as they're always right and they're number one and you yeah. guys got to figure out how to get it done. I have an anecdote to what you just said, and then I want to touch on one other thing, but you're making me laugh because you said the customer's always right, which we've always heard. And I believe that in almost every scenario, except when I read that Henry Ford once said that if I thought that the customer was always right, I would have tried to make a better horse. <laughs> that, that's true. And also I was thinking about certain things. Like I thought you're going to go with Henry Ford. I thought you were going to say, one of the things is that we, if we ask the customer what they want, it's usually so many things that we can't do it well. Yeah. So I said, I would put a caveat in there that treat your customers. What, how I told it to my team, I didn't, I didn't word it quite the way I just did with you. I told our team, if you're paying $100,000 for a firm to do something, it better be darn good. And they need to feel like they have the attention, that we're not distracted. And I always said, make our candidates feel the same way. And our industry as a whole, the executive search industry, has a very poor reputation of not getting back to candidates, not doing a really good job with clients, the same set of candidates being shown to the clients. And so that's the part I wanted to upend. I didn't want to be your typical search firm that took on too many assignments. I didn't know anything about them, passed them off to other people. So I kept it small and I really paid attention to what the customer was looking for. Yeah. And two other items I want to touch on that you said was one, hiring the right people, trusting them, but almost most importantly, paying them super well, because the last thing you want to do is build up trust, have them understand your model, have them understand who you are, how you operate. And then they leave because they're not being paid enough. And if you pay them 
it's funny. I've heard this multiple times on other podcasts and other people talking about owning their own businesses. Yeah. I just find the right person. And if they're the right person, I just pay them really well. I don't even want them thinking about leaving, right? Like it's just, it's way more worth it for me to, to pay them more and even more than they're maybe even worth today. So we don't have to worry about them leaving. So I think that's yeah, it's two, excellent. It's two things. It's pay them well. And where, where we were operating, um, it wasn't always the case. I often had to convince clients that, that this person needed to be paid more. But oftentimes we were starting and the pay was, was going to make it. That was going to work. So paying is one. And then treating them, if you're going to hire them for their skills and for what they can do for you, make sure that they have the latitude to do that. And I got caught a couple of times by my one associate saying, you know, you're over managing me. You know, you hired me for right. this. Give me autonomy. Yeah. Yes. I was so uptight about whether we were, you know, getting the return to the customer that I sometimes, I mean, and I'm a perfectionist. So, um, so you need to also make sure that they're, that they feel good about the company and the environment. But then I also think if you make a mistake, figure that out and, and fix it fast because mm -hmm. it can take you down a bad path. So everyone's going to make hiring mistakes. I'm a recruiter. And I made dramatic hiring mistakes in, on uh, two occasions, maybe three. So you're going to make mistakes. I also, on your comment about paying them well, what I would talk about with my clients is that, let's say you're paying someone just for round numbers, $100,000. If you have to replace them either through a hiring mistake or because you got them in and you haven't treated them well, or you're not paying them enough, that 100000 is 300000 plus the lost time and everything else. The, the, the expense of a wrong hire is a minimum three times what you were going to pay him. Yep. I believe that having that autonomy is huge. And it's something I value in my, in my job is having the autonomy and the trust that they hired me for a certain reason for skill sets and other things and trust me to go do it. Exactly. And then the other comment I was going to make was you're talking about giving advice to others on starting their own company and thinking about their own money and what they got to put into it and reduce in either in realizing what their lifestyle is going to look like. If they're truly all in, like if you're going to go start your own company, like, like you said, you're either all in or that, or you're not doing it. Cause if you're taking a half of a step in, it's just not, it's not going to go well. And so if you're, if you're all in, if your your new purpose in life or part of purpose in life is to, to go do whatever this company is going to go do, you got to be all in, but be really honest with yourself about the lifestyle that you're going to give yourself, the amount of hours that you're going to be working and what are the vacations you may not be able to do anymore or the night night outs with friends or time with family or whatever. What are you sacrificing? And just be like really honest with yourself because I bet that's where a lot of people get caught. So I loved your comment around that. We never dreamed of the output of this company. So what I thought I was doing was choosing a lifestyle, something I love to do, and I was going to build, it was going to sustain us. And so we were going to cut back, and then we were going to go back to our lifestyle. And the success of this company blew away anything I would have ever imagined. So I'm so grateful that I made the leap and that I spent the time and energy because it allowed me to retire early and, and not be beholden to other people. You said the key word there, retirement. Uh, I want to ask about retirement. So you retired about a year ago? About a year ago, yep. Yeah. And for the listeners, I was trying to get Kathy to retire for like years before that. So I could, <laughs> and that was purely selfish. I wanted to play more golf with her and hang out with her more and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all that. But uh, 
she did retire after yeah, 22, 23 years in the business, which is just amazing. Um, right, so in, 40, in own business. 40 year career altogether. I have a lot of questions about retirement. I prompted you a question early about if you could tell 40 year old Kathy anything, what would you tell her? Do you want to talk about that now or do you want to wait till we yeah, talk no, about I would, retirement? I would like to because it kind of sets the, sets the stage okay. for the, um, uh, sets the stage for the retirement discussion. I thought at first when I read that question, I thought it was going to be 20. Like, you know, what would you do if you're in your 20s? But I think the 40-year-old was probably even better because that's when I was first leaving corporate America. But I think that the main thing I would tell, in fact, I do tell people, um, including my own family, my son-in-laws, our kids, um, is that life's not really about the dollars or your highest rank or your latest promotion or all the stuff that you own. And that I would, I would really encourage people. And I think this generation, a lot of people have criticized this generation, your generation. And um, I think that one of the things I really admire about this generation is they're a lot more entrepreneurial. They'll leave companies, oftentimes they'll leave too early, but are too often, but they're, they're entrepreneurial. They'll go out and start something. Their home life balance is a lot more, you know, Father staying home like Bill did is a lot more um, typical. Um, they value tend to value family, but you can still get caught up in what if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't do so. It's going to sound contradictory to starting my own company, but I think what happens is you start your own company, but then you got to figure out a way to not allow your career to steal your family, your friends, your integrity, your health. And I think what happens to a lot of us, particularly the kind of personalities that start companies, <laughs> they're typically type A personalities. And you knew that I read this book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. And I have a girlfriend who's an executive reading it right now. I think what happens is you get so caught up in that, that your whole identity becomes around your career. I, I was proud of myself to be the highest ranking woman. I was proud of myself for my company that had developed. And you find out in losing your dad, um, watching that two year, not even two year, watching that 18 month, 15 month process where, you know, in the prime of his health, when he's supposed to start enjoying retirement, we lose him. What I started to rethink is what do you want the dash to look like in between your birth and your death? Do you want people to say, wow, she was a really successful businesswoman? No. That isn't what I want people to say. Maybe, maybe that's what you do want people to say. But I, what I really would, wished I would have told myself is moderation, not extreme. And I let my career, I let other people, I caved to some of the things. Um, and some of this was before I owned my own company, but some of it was after I caved to external forces that I needed to work more, be away from my family, accept this invitation to here or there. When reality was, I look back and say, I didn't need to do a lot of those things. I didn't need to give up my weekends. I didn't need to give up nights at home. And um, some of the things that people thought would extend your career, and you look back and you go, they weren't going to extend my career at all. They didn't help me. They just made my life more stressful and less hmm. connected to my family. So how do you know in the moment that an invitation, a meeting, a opportunity is going to extend your career versus, oh, this is unnecessary. 
Very good question. I think you have to stop and think about it because the, if you, especially if you work for a large company, you don't work for yourself, but then even when you work for yourself, you can get in the same problem is you have to question, you have to, you have to proactively question everything that goes on your calendar that isn't in the realm of the typical business day. And um, I think what you have to do is have a sense that you're, you're in a good enough position to defend that my family has to count. And when you know, when you know it's not going that well, like we have, we have years in my career, we call the dark years. We first moved down here to Florida. And if I would have been conscious enough to catch that, you can tell. And I think a lot of men go through this. In fact, I was just talking about it with Bill um, earlier, as I said that I think I empathize. I know I can empathize with a lot of men who are trying to be the breadwinner and then they do all the bills. They do a lot of you know, the yard work or whatever. I could know I could only run my company and I, even that stressed me out. So it just depends, I think on the person. And I could tell when I ran, when I was recruited down here that when I couldn't remember events or I didn't feel like I was present with the family, I was there, but I wasn't mentally present. That's how marriages get destroyed, families get destroyed, and it happens all the time. And I lived it because you're walking in this haze of like, okay, the work and the pressure. And I worked, I was just gone for a week. I have no idea what's going on at home. And now I'm at this soccer game. I don't even know who's playing soccer. And my mind's like racing a million different places. So I think you'll get a signal if it's too much because you can't keep things straight about what's going on in your family and your family's moved to a priority that's much lower down. And I live like that for a while. It makes me think about this concept of having enough yes. and figuring out when it, when it, when have I had enough with my, not oh, I'm done with this, but I have enough clients or I right. have enough revenue or I have enough, whatever, whatever it is. Right. I put enough time into my work and understanding and being true to yourself about when you have enough so you can make room, you know, that book, Ruthless Elimination yeah. of Hurry. Yep. talks about building margin into your life. Yeah. And so if you if you can cap having enough, enough possessions, enough money, enough clients, enough revenue, enough whatever, you start to build more margin in your life because you're starting to say no to yep. clients, you're starting to say no to revenue, you're starting to say no to meetings, to traveling. It, it builds in margin for those other important things as you mentioned. Um but it is hard in the moment. It's really it's hard and you got to be really diligent. It's really hard. And then what happens is you don't, you don't hear many people on their deathbed say they wish they would have worked longer or more <laughs> no. hours or more. So we love it when we're in it or we say we love it. And then you look back and you're like, oh, no, that, I, I just did it. And I let everybody, including myself, you know, put too much on there. And yeah, I, it, it reminds me of uh, one of my friends, Ryan Denny, who's been on the podcast. He, uh, was sitting with his, the hospice nurse of his dad. His dad died when he was about six, when his dad was 61. So it was a very similar story to, to me. And uh, he said he was sitting with the hospice nurse while his dad was in his deathbed. And uh, the hospice nurse said, you know what? In the 25 years I've been doing this, not once has a person on their deathbed said that they wish they would have worked more. Yeah. So true. Well, thank you for, I know that's a, a tough question to answer and to reflect back on, but thank you for sharing. And now we get to get to the good stuff, retirement. <laughs> retirement. <laughs> so first question is, what surprised you about retirement? Well, I've, um, and I think it surprised a lot of people around me that know me from running the company. There were several people 
uh, friends, uh, friends that I play golf with, friends that are people that I work with or the clients that didn't think I was going to be able to retire. They really thought I was going to still keep a hand in it or that I wouldn't be able to really pull away. You build something over 20 years and it was at its peak. And so by the grace of God and, and seriously, uh, prayer. And also I read a really good book that I highly recommend called Retirement Roots by Robert Laura, who, which kind of prepped you through the mindset that retirement can means a lot of things to a lot of different people, but generally in the U.S. it means like you're going to go play golf all the time or go on the beach and relax and rest. And while there's some of that, what some people really struggle with when they retire is they lose purpose because their purpose and everything that they have is all wrapped up in their company or their job. So um, I was shocked by how how I made the transition to realize that my purpose on this earth was not to create the company I created. It was awesome. It was part of my life and I loved it, but I have so many other things that I want to do or feel like I'm called to do while I'm here breathing. So um, I have, um, I have embraced it. That was a bit, that's a big surprise. I have, Absolutely loved it. And things moved a lot faster than I anticipated. I completely shut down the company. I thought I was going to kind of keep it open. I thought I might want to serve on some boards. I don't want to do any of that. I want to dive into, so it's probably the most surprising is I, I want to dive into the things that for the last 40 years, I either wasn't totally present for like our kid, our daughters. So I'm totally present for our grandchildren. We have six under six. You know, I want to totally be there for them. When they want to play a game on the floor, I want to have no other distractions. And that's been really, really fun and a surprise. And then um, I wanted to dive into some things in the community. I wanted to get to know this community and some things I'm doing with our church that I could have never done. I could have never volunteered. I went, we went to a dinner last night for an organization I've been involved with since 2006 um, called Patrons of the Hearts that provides heart surgery for children from other nations where their heart uh, where their specialties are not there to, to help fix their hearts. And I was one of the original, my company and I were the original donors, original sponsors, but I missed almost every, the, the, the founder who's a brilliant um, cardiologist, pediatric cardiologist would have these nice dinners and galas every year. I missed almost all of them. And um, now it's like so cool to be there and see how far this foundation's got to just be a part of things. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, you're talking about how it surprised you that you embraced retirement, that you had so many things that, you know, that your company, your company shut down faster, that you're involved in so many things now. And it's really funny, Kathy, because I'm, I'm smiling because everyone else knew that was going to happen in your life, <laughs> <laughs> except you. Yeah. And, 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 but you're not alone in that because I had the exact same conversation with my father-in-law when he was contemplating and struggling with retirement, you know, after a 40 plus year career, you wrap yeah. your identity around it. What am I going to do with my time and all this? And from the outside, I'm thinking about the person that they are. I'm thinking yeah. about my father-in-law and who he is. I'm thinking about Kathy and the type of person and the type of heart that you have. And so it's the least surprising thing in the world that you're involved in all these different things. And I want to, <laughs> I want to know a little bit more about what it is, but that you're involved in all these things and you're playing pickleball and you're playing golf and you're, you know, exercising and you're, cooking and your whatever, like that, like 
your your time is like completely wrapped up in all the things that you love, not to mention yeah. your family and your grandchildren. It's yeah. just really it's funny to see this these two examples in my life and important for me to realize that that whenever the time comes for me or someone else in my life, how obvious it is from the outside, but how not obvious it is if you're yeah. the person. Yeah. It was also the I guess the other big surprise, because you mentioned pickleball, golf, et cetera, is that um I slept so much immediately when the company closed. I didn't realize I had underestimated the stress on me and the stress I put on other people around me because of the stress on me that I was, I I wanted to laugh more again. I made it a goal. Like I used to be silly and funny and goofy and, and you'd see that like on the golf course, although you also saw when we were trying to be serious and they weren't. (laughs) Um, it's hard to so be goofy funny. when you're surrounded by my dad and Bill who exactly. are just doing exactly. whatever they're so doing. I wanted to go back to being more, more fun. And I found that I was, I was overstressed and that it really took a toll on my body. Cause as soon here I am like finally retired and I've got all these, nothing's major, but it's issues that have kept me from playing golf. Um, so I took a pickleball and I'm trying to start golfing a little bit again, but I realized that, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, enjoying your retirement, considering you can't do any of those, like friends that golf with me, they miss me. I haven't golfed in a year for the most part. And I said, I, I don't know how people get bored. I just have like, I love so many things that it's fortunate. I've fortunately been blessed with that, that I haven't had a bored second. In fact, the days go by and I'm like, oh my gosh, another exciting day. In fact, <laughs> when I wake up, when I wake up and I don't have anything on my calendar, it's so exciting <laughs> because I'm so, I'm so used to being so overscheduled. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, so what would you say to someone who is hesitant like you were about retirement? Oh, I, I would definitely, uh, I would definitely plan for it. Um, and this goes again, kudos to my husband, but um, you know, he ran the financials and um, he used to always joke that I was going to keep working, keep the company going. Every time I said five more years, he would say seven and, he was always joking about that. But then when reality hit and I started to think, do I want to retire earlier, which was 63 instead of 65 or whatever, because you could really do my kind of job. I could probably have done it until I was 70, but I think you want to think through. And so what number one was financially, you know, to your, to your point earlier, when's enough enough? Um, and when is the money in the next big sale starting to drive you in a direction that isn't healthy? And I'd already done all that. I hit the peak. Why not go out when you're at the peak? And so I think through the financials, you got to be comfortable with that. You have to be comfortable that you're, that you're going to be fine to really enjoy it. So kudos to my husband. I feel great about that. And not that things in our life haven't changed. There's some things that we don't do that we did before, but, um, but I feel wonderful. Um, and then you have to, um, I think, prepare. Like The reason I really love this book, This Retirement Roots by uh, Robert Laura, is he walks through that retirement's not retirement from life. And that, uh, but at the same time, he walks through the danger of some people who they feel like they lost their purpose. So you need to go through, what is your retirement goal? He had a funny, he had a funny thing, like come up with a saying for your retirement. So we tossed around a lot of them. and We ended up with um, every day is a Saturday or every day is a weekend. Love it. <laughs> so, um, so that you can have fun with it and then start preparing. And I still had the list on my phone that he suggested starting a list before you've retired, not a to-do list, making it very clear it's not a to-do list. It's like an explore list 
Like I want to explore all the parks in Jacksonville. I want to ride my bike on the beach. I want to do sunrises that I never did. So it's all the, I want to explore cooking. You talked about that cooking, cooking classes. I'm getting my Spanish back um, to be fluent again, doing some stuff with our church that I went on a couple mission trips and stuff that I used to have to either say no to, but when you explore, if, as you're exploring retirement, contemplating it, try to picture what your life would be like. And if you can see yourself being happy doing that. Hmm. And, um, and I end up just being thrilled. So. And over the last 12 months, what have you learned about yourself? Oh, well, when I said earlier that I carried a lot more of the stress, I was one of those kind of people, I got this and never, and really didn't think I was as stressed as I was. Um, and that that also parlayed itself into my interactions with other people, family, friends, the people I worked with. I'd be short, not as attentive. That's where that other book, that Comer book came in handy because I realized I was hurried. In fact, in fact, it was pretty, pretty sad that the Compassion International, which is an organization, one of the not-for-profits I work with, the woman sent me the book, her, the woman who works with me, because she always saw me as somebody in a hurry, like, get off the phone, hurry, do the next thing. So I've learned that I love being present and not hurrying, and I'm trying to, and not that I don't still struggle with some of the, some of the things, but I really love, love it. So um, I think I've, I've learned that there's a lot more to me than my company. Yeah, and it's obvious that you love giving back to others, and now you've created that margin in your life to go do that. So how does that manifest itself in your life? That's also a um, really good thing that people recommending about retirement is um, someone told me, and it might've been a little bit in that book I talked about, but I think it was also someone else that had retired gave me the advice, don't do anything for the first six months. Don't commit to anyone on uh, for the first six months. And that was really good advice. And I tell people that, I guess it really hit me because when an executive change, if somebody has been a CEO or a VP or some other high pressure job and they're looking for the next job, I always tell them, don't take the first job. Wait, evaluate, take some time off, be with your family, regroup. Well, when you're retiring, it's the same thing. So what I use is that, that kind of uh, wish list thing or what you hope to do list that the, um, the Robert Laura book put me through. And I waited for six months. I caught up on sleep. I did fun things like pickleball and golf or reconnect or went on a couple of trips, but I didn't make any decisions to redeploy my skills into something till I at least thought about it for six months. I actually ended up being more than that. I've really only re-engaged in probably the last nine months, eight, nine months. Then I knew that my, this part, however long God has me planned to be here, I feel like the what I'm here for is to serve others and not myself because my business by nature of it had to serve my, I had to constantly be somewhere that revolved around me being my best all the time. And so I'm going to try to use the skills I learned to help other people. Um, so I've, I've selected a couple of um, organizations to work with. And I was just joking with Allie and my, um, and my husband that, Allie has the same tendency. So uh, I almost think like, then I dove back in and I might've overdone already. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm trying to be selective, but I have, I did go through that list and took some off of it just because I said, I can't get back into that thing about too, you know, not enough time. Yeah. 
So what, so, what's an example of a couple of the organizations? I'd love to link them in the pod. I mentioned Compassion International. We've always been involved with Compassion International. So that's, uh, we've been involved since for more than a decade. That's, um, that was more financial contribution um, to help kids um, overcome poverty um, in a Christian way. So in Jesus' name, trying to help kids by also using the Bible for hope um, around the world. So we sponsored 10 kids and we opened up a center in Honduras, which was a big deal. But they, but that wasn't a new commitment. The new commitment that uh, is probably the biggest undertaking is I've become a guardian ad litem, which is an advocate. They also call them CASAs in certain states. It's a child advocate for children that are in the foster system um, or going to be or have come out of the foster system. And that's a little more than I thought it was going to be taken on, but I do feel it's a way for me to contribute to some things our church is doing with a, our church is hoping to, uh, to really build up foster families and adoption. And we have a huge initiative to try to surround those families, grow those families and surround them with love. So I figured this is a way to learn it. You have to go through process and it's a lot. It's, a, it's, it's diving into, you know, lots of people's lives are really, really rough and these kids are left in the middle and and so i'm an advocate for kids and i already have my first i have my first two cases that came this week and it's a lot um but it's it's something i hope to have an impact on a child because if i'm going from trying to do things for masses of people to individuals if if i can impact and give one child hope i feel like i've i've accomplished more than i could in in other organizations so that's one example of one of them i'm working with yeah, well, I'll definitely link a couple of those, and I'm excited when we're together in March to uh, hear more about that as the cases evolve. Uh, that's, uh, I'm sure, quite the undertaking, but you should be extremely proud of how you're spending your time. And again, if you can impact one kid, that's that's a huge, huge thing. Yeah, thank you. We have covered a ton today. And I'm so grateful for your time. I'm so grateful that you spent, I mean, it was obvious that you prepared for this and uh, this was one I was looking forward to and it certainly did not disappoint you. uh, You were very open and honest about your life and where it's, you know, the roller coaster that it's been. And um, I've been honored to be a part, a small part of it throughout the process and seeing it and knowing you. And, uh, you know, I appreciate Jim Vavana would be proud. You, you made me laugh today. You made me cry. Um, so that, uh, we accomplished the day. It's a full day according to Jim. And, uh, I'm just grateful for your time, Kathy. Thank you for, for spreading the word today. And for, uh, I know you inspired someone today. I have no doubt about it. So thank you for being on. Well, well, thank you. I did. Sorry. I did just think of one more thing that impacted my retirement. I actually didn't even have it in my notes, but, and it's on my list of things I want to explore to do. When you, um, after you lost your father and you said life is short and you wrote letters to everyone, that was very inspirational to me to retire as one of it, one of you wrote that letter to me, you wrote a letter to me, which was so appreciative and to my husband. And, um, I put that, I realized that time is short and I put that on my list, um, of things I want to make sure I do before it's too late. So I want to write to all the people that have been meaningful to me. So, so I appreciate, thank you for having me as a guest. I am honored and I'm glad we waited to do it. I am too. Yeah. I mean, the, the, it allowed you to be in, I think in a space that, uh, to share what you shared today. And I think that's fantastic. And, and just for the listeners, I do, I'm grateful that you brought up the, I call them deathbed notes. Um, I'll give a 30 second 
view of what those are. So when my dad was passing away, he was probably two weeks away from passing. And, uh, I kind of sent a note to everyone in, in his life and said, Hey, last chance, like anything you want to say to my dad, like, I'm sure he would love to get an email or a note or a visit or any of that. And notes were just pouring in, right. Mo- mostly email. And, uh, you know, a lot of, he shared a lot of them with me and they were really special, really touching, um, from people all across all chapters of his life. And about six months after he passed, I made the realization like, huh, why do we wait until someone's on their deathbed? And yeah. it, it, lucky is the wrong word, but we were lucky. You know, my dad was lucky that he kind of knew he was going to die. It wasn't right, some sudden right. tragic accident or something that was, that was all of a sudden. And, um, so I said, why do we wait? And so I committed to myself to write notes to people that have impacted my life and have been a part of my life. And I'm still going through that list. I have, uh, Amazing. There's, a, there's a lot of people there and I, I, I've, I have written mine and said mine to, to Kathy and to Bill and to others in my life, but I have that. That's what Kathy is referencing. And, um, I encourage it to everyone. It forces you to sit there and think, and it's always wonderful to be grateful. It's like, it's so nice. And the conversations that ensue after that and the, the relationship that you continue to build. I mean, these are some of the most important people in your life and you already probably have very deep and trusting relationships with them, but it just allows you to really contemplate how special they are and how much they've meant to you. And, and I know it brings joy to the recipient. So yeah, I'm glad to hear that you're going to do the same. That's, uh, yeah. they're really right special. My list right here. If you could see my list, you would see it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, we have built with Kathy failing Kathy. Thanks for being on. Thank you. Have a great day. Hey listener, it's Clay. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the build with Clay podcast. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen so you can discover all the episodes and hear from others about their growth journey. If you know me at all, you know that I love feedback. So please rate the episode and provide your comments so I can grow and be better for you and our guests. For more content, you can find Build With Clay on Instagram at buildwithclay and head to claydavis.substack.com where you can sign up for a bi-weekly newsletter sent directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're inspired to grow.